0: I want to talk to you this morning about the, uh, the matter of death. This is the big one. This is what our society has uh, come to call, rather indelicately, the big chill. This uh, ought to be a, a popular subject. It's not, but it ought to be because it's a very popular event. It's something that uh, involves all of us. As someone has said, death is the most democratic of all human institutions, because everyone sooner or later gets involved. It all ends with the grave. I mentioned a couple of Easter's ago a, a segment that I saw in Doctor in uh, Mister Crumbs Robert Crumbs uh, Mister Natural back in the sixties. Some of you uh, who grew up in that era will remember Mister Natural. He was sort of combination guru and philosopher and uh, social critic for the counterculture. Robert Crumb said that you ought to bring your problems to Mr. Natural and lay them down. He had the solution to every problem. But there's one segment that stuck in my mind I've never forgotten. It showed uh, Mr. Natural talking to a young student. The student was looking at a girl who had on a very short skirt. And he said to Mr. Natural, where will it end, Mr. Natural? And Mr. Natural said, in the grave, My boy. In the grave. And that's where it will all end. We don't like to face the fact of our death, but it's inevitable. You may evade taxes, but uh, you can't beat the grim reaper. That's the only, one of the only real certainties left in life. One of these days we're going to have to face death. And it's facing death that makes us look for a cure. As the book of Ecclesiastes says, there's more reality at a funeral than there is at a party because there you have to face things as they really are. To not face death is an evasion of reality. You have to face it because one of these days, the grim reaper is going to come and claim us. And when that happens, we have to know how to, how to meet death and we have to find a cure. I think it probably hits us hardest when we read in the papers uh, that some well-known sports figure has died, someone like Flo Hyman, the Olympic basketball uh, player, or Steve Prefontaine, the long-distance runner, or more recently Lynn Bias from the University of Maryland. Sports figures aren't supposed to die. They're young, they're vital, and uh, they, when they die before their time, it seems to hit us the hardest. Mike Lapresti's uh, recent article in The Statesman, I think, put that thought into words. Forty-eight hours ago, Len Bias was right there on center stage. It was one of the great days of his life, being drafted by the Boston Celtics. He seemed in such good condition. A Celtics physical examination said it was so. This was his time, and we all saw it, and then he was gone. It isn't supposed to be like that when you're 22 years old and on the way to your dream. But it is. It happened to Lynn Bias, and it will happen to us. We have to look for a cure. Well, I'm here to tell you there is a cure, and it's found in Jesus. And John tells about it in the 11th chapter of John. Would you turn with me back to that passage? We began our study two weeks ago, and unfortunately we weren't able to finish. I hate to break up a passage like this into two units of thought, because it really is one unit. But we had to because of... uh, Just the length of the chapter and the time constraints that we have. But really, the chapter begins with verse 1 in the story of the messenger who came to Jesus over in Jordan. He was uh, upstream from Jerusalem, off to the northeast, over in what we would call Jordan today, across the Jordan River, where John the Baptist had carried on his ministry. He had to flee Jerusalem because his life had been threatened. And so he went over across the river with his disciples and he was ministering there. When news came to him from Bethany that his dear friend Lazarus had died. John belabors the fact that Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. They they were good friends, best of friends. And word comes to Jesus that his good friend was sick. He didn't know it, but at the time he received the word... Lazarus was dead, or at least the messengers didn't know it, and his disciples didn't know it. We don't know if Jesus knew it at that point or not. But he was told, your friend is sick. And uh, for what seems to be an inexplicable reason, he uh, stayed where he was for two, two days, two whole days. We talked about that delay a couple of weeks ago. Delays are always a part of the process of helping us grow and helping us see God as he really is. He doesn't always run to our rescue. He doesn't always take us out of the, the adverse circumstances that we're in. He may let us wait with nothing more than God himself for a time. And, and as Jesus put it, this is all for the glory of God. It's so you can see something of God that you've never seen before. But then after that two-day delay, he, he made his way down to Bethany. And we pick up the story in verse 17. When Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their, uh, their brother. There are two observations I'd like to make about these two verses. The first is that Lazarus was dead. There's no question about that. He wasn't in a coma. He wasn't unconscious. He was dead. He'd been in the tomb for four days. Funeral directors tell us that we ought to face the fact of the death of one of our loved ones. And for a time, we don't like to think about it. We act as though it hasn't really happened. And one of the healthiest things to do is to face the fact that they're gone. John wants to make it very clear that Lazarus is gone. He's dead. He's been in the grave for four days, irreversibly, irrevocably dead. The second thing that he wants us to know is that Bethany was two miles from Jerusalem. That's an odd thing to introduce at this point, but it's very important. Because he wants us to understand that this happened where it happened, and Jesus' ministry occurred as it did, because he wanted to reach the people in Bethlehem. That was the center of unbelief. And uh, Bethany was just a little ways over the Mount of Olives, about two miles away from Jerusalem. And, And a number of people had come over to Bethany to console Mary and Martha. They were friends of the family. And uh, these were people who, by and large, were characterized by unbelief. And this is important. As I said a couple of weeks ago, this is the last and the ultimate sign, unless you uh, include the sign of Jesus' resurrection itself. But in terms of establishing that he was the Messiah, this is by far the most important the most conclusive sign, because uh, it was said... That Messiah would raise the dead. Remember when John sent word to Jesus and asked if he was the one who would come or should they should they look for another? Jesus said, go tell John that, that the blind receive their sight, the deaf hear, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the dead are raised from the grave. So it was important that this happened right in the center of unbelief. They had to decide, is this the Messiah or not? Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. Uh, that's in line with her uh, personality. She was a, a very aggressive, go-for-broke person. Mary, who seemed to be more retiring and shy, sat uh, still in the house. Martha, therefore, said to Jesus, the first thing she said, apparently, when she, when she met him. Verse 21, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. I think Mary was angry. I think she was upset. She believed that Jesus could ask anything of the Father and he would do it. She knew that he had the power to heal Lazarus, and now Lazarus had died. She says, oh, if you'd just been here, you would have healed him. I don't think she had the remotest idea that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. If you follow the story on through, it's clear that was not what she expected. Right to the very end, she didn't expect that. I think she was miffed. She was upset. If you'd just been here, Lord, he wouldn't have died. Jesus says to her, verse 23, your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. The last day is the last day of human history. That's what the Negro spiritual calls that great getting up morning. That's resurrection morning. When our Lord comes back to put an end to human history and set everything right, and that's that getting up morning, resurrection day, the last day. Martha says, when the last day comes, my brother will rise. Now, you have to understand the Jews had a very clear understanding of the resurrection of the dead. It was only the Sadducees that questioned that belief, which, as Walt Kaiser says, is why they were sad, you see. <laughs> they had no hope. But uh, the average Jew on the street believes strongly in the resurrection of the dead. It's taught in the Old Testament. It's clearly taught in the Old Testament. Psalm 48, Psalm 73, Isaiah 11, Daniel 12, Isaiah 53. It's shot all through the Old Testament. And uh, Jesus himself, arguing with the, with the Sadducees, said, Haven't you ever read the scriptures where God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Said after these men had died, if they had died and passed out of existence, he would have said, I was. But he said, I am. So Martha wasn't in doubt about the resurrection on the last day. Martha's problem is she wanted her brother there now. That's what happens to us when a loved one dies. We believe that we're going to see them at the last day, but we want them now. We miss them. I told you some time ago of a incident that occurred at the funeral of an infant. A child had lived for a couple of days, a little girl, and she, uh, she died. And I had the funeral. And a little boy who was her brother was standing at the casket, and he was weeping. And I went over and put my arms around him. And I said, your little sister is in the the Lord's house. He's safe with the Lord. And he said, I don't care. He said, I want her now. I want to play with her now. He said, and that was what Martha was saying. I want my brother here now. I don't want to wait until the last day. I miss him. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's almost impossible to do justice with this text in an English translation. But what Jesus says is this. I myself and I alone am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me even if he dies will never by any means whatever perish or die throughout the ages. That's the idea. That's the force of the text. Now, again, there are two things to observe from this text. The first is that Lazarus is still alive. That's what Jesus is saying. He's more alive than he ever was. He's gone through biological death, but he isn't really dead. That's what he's saying. He's alive. He's living right now. And he'll never really die because he's one of mine. He's believed in me. Martha says, I want him here now. Jesus says, well, he is alive right now. He's in good shape. He's in better shape than he's ever been. Now, you see, what that does for us is free us from the dread of death. Hebrews says that that the evil one has kept us, has tyrannized us, and continues to tyrannize us through our life by fear of death. That's why we spend so much money on uh, uh, trying to uh, stave off death. If you stop and think about the enormous amounts of time and energy that go into trying to keep death at arm's length, our defense budget, Everything that physicians and, and dentists do and the cosmetics industry and everything is, is based on this idea. We gotta stave off we have to stave off death. But you see, for us as Christians, we don't have to worry about death. As G. K. Chesterton said, we can face it with colossal joy because it means transition. That's all, it's just it's just transition. From one phase of, of life to another. As I said two weeks ago, it's, it's like going to sleep and waking up in a safe house. Nothing to fear. And C.S. Lewis, is first, uh, in the first of his space trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, he pictures an unfallen uh, planet, Mars. And one of the inhabitants of the planet, an unfallen inhabitant, says to Ransom, who is the unwilling space traveler, the scientist who is in Mar- on Mars, he talks about a miraculous dream from which you drank, and he said, that was the sweetest of drinks, except one. And Ransom says, which one is that? And he says, death, when I go to be with Maladil, which was his word for God. So for the inhabitants of this planet, death wasn't something to dread. It was just sweet transition from, from this life into the next. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying. About Lazarus, he went to sleep and he woke up, and he's in God's presence, and he's more alive today than he's ever been. This is not the end. This is not all there is. And no, no matter how much pain and suffering and hurt we go through in this world, when we face death, it just means transition into an even more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and endless joy in His presence. It's nothing to be afraid of. It's nothing to fear. Secondly, Jesus says in this passage that not only is Lazarus alive today, he is alive because of me. you see that? God does not grant resurrection simply out of some uh, choice that he makes, out of the fact that he's, he's willing for us to live on, or that he's good. He does it on the basis of Jesus. And that's the only basis on which he could grant everlasting life. Because you see... Death is not the natural end of biological life. Death is the result of sin. Paul says the wages of sin, the payment for sin, is death. And in Romans 5.12, he points out that it's through one man that, death enter, that sin entered the world, and death through sin, and therefore death passed through the whole human race because all of sin. You want to know... If people are sinners, then just watch them for a while, and if they die, then you know that they're sinful. That's what Paul is saying. Adam introduced death into the world by his sin. Adam sinned, and he died, and he passed that uh, trait on to all of us, and we sin, and, and we die. That's why we all die. It's not normal. It's not natural. It's the result of sin in the world. So somebody has to do something about sin. You see, it's sin that... As as Paul points out in First Corinthians fifteen, that gives gives death its its lethal quality. He calls it a sting. Sting of death is sin. But Jesus took away that sin. And therefore he took away the sting of death. He solved the problem of death. The whole world's in the iron grip of death, and our Lord provided a cure. I have a, a friend who used to work for UPS on the West Coast, and he was telling me a story a couple of weeks ago about a, a friend of his who was a deliverer for United Parcel Service. And uh, he had one friend on his route he used to deliver to all the time, and they got very well acquainted, and he trusted him. And he would drop off packages there, and then later in the day... He would come back, and the man would sign for the packages. On this particular day, he had three small packages that he left, came back at the end of the day. The man said, I only got two. He would only sign for two. When his employers found out about it, they charged him with the price of the package, which happened to be a package of gems valued at $10,000. And you can imagine, this guy was sweating it out. He was sharing it with a friend, and the guy says, Well, i got some contacts. I'll see what I can do. And the next day, this fellow showed up in a dark blue suit, wearing shades and speaking in a very soft voice, and said, Tell me your problem. Maybe we can help you. (laughs) So he told him his problem. The next day, the fellow that he delivered to showed up, obviously shaken, a little green around the gills. He says, Where do I sign? You're right. I was wrong. There were actually three packages. Where do I sign? So uh, he signed off the package, and the man was home scot-free until the next day when when the fellow who did him the favor showed up with his blue suit and his shades. And he says, how can I thank you? And, and the fellow says, don't, don't worry. We're going to think of a way. We'll call on you one of these days. And he realized that he'd gotten himself tied into the mob. Now, you see, that's what sin has done to us. It's tied us into death. And one of these days, the Graham reaper is going to show up on your doorstep and he's going to call for you. And there's no way out. Except through Jesus. That's why Jesus says, I, and I alone, and the resurrection and the life. No one else has ever solved the problem of death. Physicians work hard at this. And they've solved many of the problems that haunted us, my generation as children, like tuberculosis and polio and smallpox. Those things are not a threat anymore to us, by and large. But they've been replaced by cancer and uh, by heart disease and by AIDS and other diseases. And it's inexorable. We just move every day closer to our death. No one can solve the problem except Jesus. And he says, I... And I alone and the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, will never, ever die. Do you believe this? And that's the question I'd ask of you. Do you believe that? If you do, then you'll never die. Not really. The story moves in three stages. It centers around Martha first, and then it moves to Mary, verses thirty through thirty-seven. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. The Jews then, who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Sounds like they'd been comparing notes. They must have said that to one another over and over again. If the Lord had just come, he wouldn't have died. But see, even she, with her faith, with that heart of worship that we see over and over again in Mary, didn't believe that Jesus was going to do anything at this point. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. The word is used in classical Greek of a horse snorting. It actually uh, signifies anger. Jesus was outraged at what death had done to his, his young friend, Lazarus. Death ought to make us mad. We know where it comes from. It comes from the from the enemy, who tyrannizes us through death. Jesus describes him as the murderer, the liar and the murderer. We ought to be angry when war takes fine young men. Someone described wartime as, as the, the only time in life when Fathers bury their sons instead of sons burying their fathers. What a tragedy when fine young men and women are taken in war. What a tragedy when terrorists take the lives of innocent men and women and children. And when little children are beaten to death by their parents that they trust. It ought to make us angry at the person who does it. But more than that, at death itself, the last enemy. And at the great enemy, Satan, who lies behind it all. Our Lord was angry. He was deeply moved in his spirit and he was troubled. That's the word that's used in John 5 for the pool. It was periodically troubled. He was emotionally shaken. He was upset. He had the same human emotions that we have. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Literally, he shed tears. He burst into tears at this point. So not only does he share our indignation and our anger at death, but he shares our sorrow. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death with our loved ones, our Lord walks with us and he understands, he cares, matters to him about us. He weeps with us. Nothing wrong with weeping. George MacDonald said that oft times tears are the only cure for weeping. We Christians are not stoics. We're just Christian. That's all. We sorrow, Paul says. But we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Our sorrow is not despair, though it is deep sorrow. And when we sorrow, our Lord understands. And he weeps with us. Some of the Jews were saying, behold how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? You see, no one believed he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Three times that phrase occurs in this passage. And each time there's a hint of unbelief in all of this. He could heal, but that's the end of the line for Lazarus. Jesus, therefore, again, being deeply moved within, it's the word that's found in verse 33 came to the tomb, Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against us, a rock-cut cave still in Bethany. If we can trust the uh, people that point out the the site, just a little cave carved in the rock right in the center of the the city of Bethany. It would probably have been outside the city at at this time. Jesus said, remove the stone. It's odd, isn't it? Here is the Son of God, God himself on earth. Limited to such an extent that he, he couldn't roll away the stone. He could raise the dead, but he wasn't physically strong enough to roll away the stones. Odd mix of deity and humanity in one person that's so mystifying to us. He says, "Remove the stone." Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, "Lord, by this time there'll be a stench. She's been dead four days." De-. You see, I think Martha thought he wanted to view the body, and she says that's inappropriate. He's been dead for four days. You don't want to go in there. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. You'll see God reverse the effects of of death. You'll see him reverse the decay in Lazarus' body. You'll see something of God that you've never seen before. And so they removed the the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that, that thou hearest me. And I, I know that you hear me always, but because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that you did send me. He prayed not for his own sake, but for the sake of those that stood around, so that they would come to realize that he was the one sent. That's a phrase from Malachi that was lifted out of the text and was applied to Messiah, the one sent, the one who is to come, the coming one. Jesus said, I... I didn't call upon you for my own sake, but for theirs, so they would would see me as I am. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He didn't have to cry in a loud voice. He could have spoken quietly, and Lazarus would have have come out of the tomb. I think this is a symbol of uh, what uh, Jesus refers to earlier in John when he describes the last day and And his crying out with a loud voice, and those in the tombs coming forth, this was a a sort of preview of that event. He cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, here, outside, literally is what he says. Augustine, I think, was the first to, to comment on the fact that had he not said Lazarus, he would have emptied the cemeteries. But because he called him by name, Lazarus came forth, and And notice what John says. He he wants us to realize who this Lazarus is. He who had died. Literally, this dead one, this dead fellow, came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings. And his face was wrapped around with a cloth. That's uh, John's uh, note. He was an eyewitness of this event. And and what struck him was the fact that the, the cloth was still wrapped around Lazarus' face. He couldn't see. And uh, because they bound them like mummies in those days with their feet together, I don't know how Lazarus got out. Maybe he hopped out. But anyway, he showed up. And John saw it. He was standing right there. He couldn't miss it. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Now, if I'd been writing this account, if I were John standing there, I would have recorded all kinds of things. I would imagine that... uh, people scattered and ran and and uh, shouted out loud out of fear and grabbed each other i mean this would be terrifying we can't just put yourself in in their shoes seeing a dead man still wrapped in in the in the little burial clothes the straps that they put them in come appear at the opening to this cave but uh, john doesn't tell us any of that because his the point is not to tell a story is to bring us to a point of belief you see that's what jesus words and deeds always always do they bring us to that point where we have to decide are we going to we're going to side with jesus or not we're going to go alone make our way through life face death, uh, face death on our on our own or are we going to face it with jesus that's the choice we have to make and that's why john not telling us the emotional reactions of the people tells us their spiritual reaction. Verse 45. Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. They didn't go and tell the Pharisees what great things Jesus had done. They went over and tattled on him so the Pharisees would know where he was so they could come and get him. This was unbelief. And that's always the reaction. Either we fall into Jesus' arms, or we want to kill him. Can't be neutral. That's what Jesus' words and deeds always do. And I I would have to ask you, and I'd have to ask myself at this point, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? That's the most important decision in the world. You and I will not evade death. We're going to face it. And we either will face it with Jesus or without him. And I want you to know that there is no other solution. Jesus and Jesus alone is the route to eternal life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he said that in a context of going to heaven and being in the Father's house. No one gets there, he says, except through me. That's the only door. It's the only way. So that's our option. Either we believe in Jesus, we embrace him and love him and side with him and we go into eternity with him at our side. Or we reject it. And as C.S. Lewis said, we We go out into eternity, isolated, lost, unspeakably ignored. That's the only prospect. There's no other way. Thomas Akempath wrote, Very soon the end of your life will be at hand. Consider, therefore, the state of your soul. Today a man is here, tomorrow he is gone. Oh, how dull and hard is the heart of man! which thinks only of the present and does not provide against the future. How can you promise yourself a long life when when you're not certain of a single day? How many have deceived themselves and been snatched unexpectedly from this life? You have often heard how this man was slain by the sword. Another drowned. Another fell from a high place and broke his neck. How another died at table. How another met his end at play. One perished by fire, another by sword, another from disease, another at the hand of bandits." Death is the end of all men, and the life of a man passes away suddenly as a, as a shadow. Some of you will not be here next year. I may not be here next year. I, I think back on, on my friends in this congregation who are today gone. They're with the Lord. And they had no idea they were healthy, strong men and women. But today they're gone. They're with the Lord. And it's almost certain that some of us here this morning will not be here next year. Oh, we can't avoid to play around and delay, and we can't avoid to play games. We've got to face the fact of our death and look to the only one that could cure the problem of death, and that's Jesus. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, will never die. Do you believe that? Let's pray. I'd like to ask you to, this morning, to consider the end of your life and then to consider Jesus. There's no other way. You can, you can face, through Him, you can face death as Christians have faced death from the very beginning with, with colossal joy. As mere transition, biological death is nothing to fear because this body is not all that we are. Our Lord wants to give you life. He, he doesn't withhold it from anyone. Never takes it away from you. He wants you to come just uh, just as you are. He's not turned away by your sin and and the the mistakes that you've made and the things that you've done to your to your life and to your body and to your family and your children. That's all past. He. He doesn't want you to to do anything but come to him and receive life. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for my sin. For setting me free from, from death's tyranny. Thank you for that. Will you do that this morning? Ask him to be your Savior and your Lord. Believe in him. And trust yourself to him. Lord, thank you again for this good word, this reminder that that death has no terror for us any longer. We've, We've been set free from the dread of death. We've been given hope and given eternal life. And we thank you for that. We know there's no other one that can provide that for us. We thank you for solving the problem of death. In Jesus' name. Amen.